This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about a former Power Ranger turned mother of three with a very unique perspective on business and the bikini. She wore an itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini that she wore for the first time today. <laughs> Advertising agencies learned years ago that decorating virtually any product with a scantily clad woman will grab a man's attention. After all, what is the most popular edition of Sports Illustrated every year? Yet, the same bikini that is worn by supermodels in SI's swimsuit issue is also used to cover females of all ages when they go to the beach. Jessica Ray is a former Power Ranger turned swimsuit designer who can't draw, sew, or swim. After college, Jessica moved to Los Angeles and got her MBA in marketing while working at a television production company as an accountant when a talent manager suggested she try acting. After landing a few commercials, she booked her first television audition as the White Power Ranger on Disney's Power Rangers Wild Force. As for the swimsuits, here's self-described mompreneur Jessica Ray with the rest of her story. Hi, I'm Jessica Ray and I am a full-time entrepreneur. I'm the founder and CEO of Ray Swimwear, which is a company I started about six years ago when I was acting in Hollywood. I used to be on a TV show called The Power Rangers. I was the pink and white one. I wanted a swimsuit that covered more than a string bikini, but didn't make me look like my grandma. And since I couldn't find one, I decided to make one. Every time I wore it, people asked where I got it, and so I decided to start my own company. Business took off about three years ago when a TED-style talk that I gave went viral on YouTube. I sold out of all of my inventory in two days, which should have lasted me all summer, and business has been growing ever since. Shortly after that, I wrote a book called Decent Exposure, so I'm oftentimes traveling, giving talks to teens and young adults, and doing book signings. I also happen to be a full-time mom. I have three kids, ages five, four, and two, so life can get just a little bit hectic. My husband and I decided to homeschool them because we want to be involved with every aspect of their lives. We love being around them. We take them with us when we travel, and every day is a new adventure with them. I'm also their manager because they also act and model, and homeschooling gives us the flexibility that we need. I'm not Superwoman. I'm a Power Ranger, remember? (laughs) But a lot of people don't see how it's possible to be an entrepreneur and a full-time mom. It's actually the number one question that I get asked by people. Is it possible to be a mompreneur? A huge factor in me doing what I do is my husband. He is 100% supportive of me and my business. He also works full time, but when he gets home from work, he takes over so that I can go to meetings, run to the factory, or do whatever I have to do. We help each other out and we just make a really good team. I don't quite fit in with the entrepreneur world, which is male dominated. I had a male investor once tell me that I should stop having kids so that we could start doing some real business together. And another man told me that he wouldn't invest in my company unless I hired a full-time nanny, to which I said, bye-bye. 
I love my homeschooling mom friends, but sometimes I feel like I don't fit in there either. A lot of people don't think it's possible to be a mompreneur, but I'd like to think otherwise. A big part of my motivation is my daughter. I want her to grow up knowing that she can do anything that she wants to do, whether that means staying home, working at an office, or starting her own business. I mean, I'm a swimsuit designer who can't draw, sew, or swim. So really, anything's possible. Let's take a listen to that viral TED-style talk Jessica just mentioned. As a working actress, Jessica's daily uniform was a bikini because, as she says, hanging out at the pool between auditions and jobs became my life. So one day, after much contemplation and research, I decided I was done with bikinis. Here's Jessica on the origins of the bikini and the origins of her own swimwear company. Hello. I'm sure you've all heard that song before, and I apologize if it gets stuck in anyone's head for the rest of the day. But I'm wondering if you've ever really listened to the lyrics, because until a couple of weeks ago, I had never really listened to them before, so I'd like to review some of them with you. The first verse goes, She was afraid to come out of the locker. She was as nervous as she could be. She was afraid to come out of the locker. She was afraid that somebody would see. The song continues with her being afraid to come out in the open, so she hides in her blanket. And then she's afraid to come out of the water, so she starts to turn blue. Why was this woman so afraid? The song was released in 1960, 14 years after the bikini was invented in France. Uh, French engineer Louis Rayard invented the bikini. He worked in his mother's lingerie shop and he named it after the site of the atomic bomb testing that year, Bikini Atoll. He thought that the public's reaction would be like an atomic bomb explosion, and he was right. His design was based on exposing the belly button for the first time, and he said it wasn't a true bikini unless it could be pulled through a wedding ring. It was so scandalous that no French model would wear it, so he had to hire a stripper to debut his bikini. And when we come back more, it's hard to imagine a day when there wasn't a bikini and that it was scandalous. I mean, can you imagine that? More on Jessica Ray's story. And by the way, anytime we get a chance to play great tracks like this Beach Boy track, we do. Let's go out with the Beach Boys and Jessica Ray here on Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and let's return to Greg and his story about Power Ranger turned swimsuit entrepreneur Jessica Ray. And we learned earlier that the bikini was so scandalous that no French model would wear it, so they had to hire a stripper to demo it. Let's return to Greg. I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her head So what was beach life like before the bikini? Before Rayard invented the bikini, women wore one-piece swimsuits like this. Or if they were two-piece swimsuits, they were still very modest, exposed very little midriff, and always covered the belly button. Before that, at the turn of the century, women wore these voluminous bathing costumes, and they used things called bath machines, uh, which were like a six-by-six-by-six wooden or canvas hut on wheels. The woman would get inside of the bathing machine in her clothes, and then she would change into her bathing costume, and horses, or sometimes people, would drag the bathing machine down to the shoreline, and the woman would get straight into the water so that no one would see her in her bathing costume. We have certainly come a long way since then, from practically wearing a house, 36 square feet, to wearing about 36 square inches of fabric. Here's how America first responded to the two-piece French design. You go to the beach today, and it seems like everyone is wearing a bikini. But it was not an instant hit in the United States. In 1957, Modern Girl magazine said it was hardly necessary to waste words on the so-called bikini because no girl with tact or decency would ever wear such a thing. And one writer described the bikini as a two-piece bathing suit that revealed everything about a girl except for her mother's maiden name. Guards at the beach would measure bathing suits, and women wearing bikinis were sure to get kicked off of the beach. So it's no wonder that the girl in the song was afraid to come out of the water. But then, the 60s happened. With the 1960s, however, came the sexual revolution and the women's movement and the rising popularity of the bikini. Soon, no one was afraid to wear one, and in 1965, a woman told Time magazine that it was almost square not to. Last year alone, annual spending on the bikini totaled $8 billion. The popularity of the bikini has been attributed to the power of women, not the power of fashion. And a New York Times reporter called the bikini the millennial equivalent of the power suit. So I'd like to take a couple minutes to examine this so-called power that wearing the bikini brings. Here's Jessica as she begins to kick the hornet's nest. A few years ago, male college students at Princeton University participated in studies of how the male brain reacts to seeing people in different amounts of clothing. Brain scans revealed that when men are shown pictures of scantily clad women, the region of the brain associated with tools such as screwdrivers and hammers lit up. Some men showed zero brain activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that lights up when one ponders another person's thoughts, feelings, and intentions. 
researchers found this shocking because they almost never see this part of the brain shut down in this way. And a Princeton professor said, it's as if they're reacting to these women as if they are not fully human. It's consistent with the idea that they are responding to these photographs as if they were responding to objects, not people. In a separate Princeton study, when men viewed images of women in bikinis, they often associated with first-person action verbs, such as I push, I grab, I handle. But when they saw images of women dressed modestly, they associated them with third-person action verbs, such as she pushes, she grabs. Analysts at the National Geographic concluded that bikinis really do inspire men to see women as objects, as something to be used rather than someone to connect with. So, it seems that wearing a bikini does give a woman power, the power to shut down a man's ability to see her as a person, but rather as an object. Girls, you know you better watch out. Jessica continues. This is surely not the kind of power that women were searching for, the power to be treated as an equal, to be seen as in control, and to be taken seriously. It seems that the kind of power they're searching for is more attainable when they dress modestly. But now comes the problem of modesty. The very word modesty is often met with such disdain, especially among the younger high school crowd. I remember speaking to a group of teenagers in New York, and when I mentioned modesty, this girl yelled from the back, what am I supposed to dress like then? A grandma? <laughs> and I was scared. <laughs> um, but I have to admit, I thought the same thing when I first learned about modesty. I thought it meant I had to be frumpy and dumpy and out of fashion, and I imagined myself wearing dresses like this, sitting alone in my living room, never going on another date ever again, and never getting married. And I was particularly frustrated when shopping for a swimsuit when I decided not to wear bikinis anymore, because all I could find were things that my grandmother would actually wear. Instead of being discouraged, I took matters into my own hands and I designed my own swimsuit. And the first time I wore it, a few girls asked where I got it, and the second time a few more, and so on and so forth. So I decided to put my MBA to use, which made my parents so happy, and start my own swimsuit company. Jessica has a reason greater than a monetary one for owning a swimsuit company. My goal is to disprove the age-old notion that when it comes to swimsuits, less is more, and that you can dress modestly without sacrificing fashion. My inspiration for my swimsuit line is Audrey Hepburn, who is timeless and classy and who happened to have dressed very modestly. I don't think people think of Audrey Hepburn and think frumpy dumpy and out of fashion. These are some of my designs. And my tagline is, who says it has to be itsy bitsy? Well, to answer the question, if you look at today's society, everyone, everyone says it has to be itsy bitsy. Fashion designers, the media, and let's face it, sometimes parents. Little girls would not be running around in sexy underwear and skimpy bikinis if it wasn't for their parents buying them for them. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. From kicking the hornet's nest to swatting at the queen bee, Jessica, a practicing Catholic, leaves us with these final words. 
I believe that the woman was afraid to come out of the water because she had a natural sense of modesty about her that has been stripped away by today's culture. And we need to bring it back. I have dedicated a lot of my time. I travel all over the country speaking to girls about this issue. I've just written a book called Decent Exposure about it. And we need to teach girls that modesty isn't about covering up our bodies because they're bad. Modesty isn't about hiding ourselves. It's about revealing our dignity. We were made beautiful in his image and likeness. So the question I'd like to leave you with is, how will you use your beauty? Thank you. In her book, Decent Exposure, Jessica Ray asserts this. Fashion's guiding perspective is often sexual attraction. Moreover, bikini designers were aware that they were undressing the American public and constantly challenging the legal limits of public nakedness. She's got a point. After all, what's the difference between lingerie and the bikini other than fabric? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And thanks for all you're doing, Jessica, for anybody who's got daughters and worries about these things. What a great question to ask. How will you use your beauty? And by the way, you can still look great and still look fashionable. Jessica Ray's story, a mom, mompreneur, I think is the word, a mompreneur's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Subscribe for our podcasts. Share our stories with friends. And last but not least, if you've got a story, any kind of story, send it to us. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And a very unusual guest recently spoke in front of a congressional subcommittee. And we don't do politics on this show, as you well know. But every once in a while, real human life creeps into Capitol Hill. When that happens, the very rare occasions that happens, we bring you there. Frank Stevens gave this testimony, quote, I am a man with Down syndrome, and my life is worth living. In fact, he went further. Quote, I have a great life. End quote. Let's take a listen to this young man's powerful testimony on Capitol Hill. The 
life expectancy for someone born with Down syndrome has increased from 25 years in the early 1980s to more than 50 years today. In Iceland, nearly every fetus with this condition is terminated. The United States has an estimated termination rate for Down syndrome of 75%. In France, it's 77%. And Denmark, 98%. Many of those living with Down syndrome are understandably dismayed at the implication that their extra chromosome renders their life more trouble than it's worth. That's the context for Frank Stevens' full testimony to Congress, which urges allocating federal money to the research that would help people with Down syndrome, rather than proceeding as though the best way to address it is prenatal testing and selective termination. Here's Frank Stevens' testimony to Congress. Mr. Chairman and members of the, the, of the, of the committee, just so there, there, there is no confusion, let me say that I, I am not a, a, a research scientist. <laughs> However, no one knows more about life with Down syndrome than, than, than I do. Whatever you learn today, please remember this. I am a man with Down syndrome and my life is worth living. Sadly, across the world, a notion is being sold that maybe we don't need research concerning Down syndrome. Some people say prenatal screens will identify Down syndrome in the womb, and those pregnancies will just be terminated. It's hard for me to sit here and say those words. I completely understand that, that the people pushing this particular final solution are saying that, that people like me should not exist. That view is deeply prejudiced by an, uh, by an outdated idea of life with Down syndrome. That really should be all that needs to be said. However, there's more. Seriously, I have a great life. I have lectured at universities, acted in an award-winning film, and an Emmy-winning TV show, and spoken to thousands of young people about the value of inclusion in making America great. I have been to the White House twice, and I didn't have to jump the fence either time. <laughs> Seriously, I don't feel I should have to justify my existence. 
but to those who question the value of people with Down syndrome, I would make three points. First, we, 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 are, we are a medical gift to society, a blueprint for, for medical research into cancer, Alzheimer's, and immune system disorders. Second, we are in an unusually powerful source of happiness. A Harvard-based study has discovered that people with Down syndrome, as well as their parents and siblings, are, are happier than society at large. Surely happiness is, is worth something. Finally, we are the we are the canary in the eugenics in the eugenics coal mine. We are giving the world a chance to think about the ethics of choosing which humans get a chance at life. So we are helping to defeat cancer and Alzheimer's. And we make the world a happier place. Is there, is there really no place for us in the, the, in the, the, the world? Frank made the point that he is a medical gift to society that could include a blueprint for cures into cancer, Alzheimer's, and more. This is a very personal issue for Frank. On a deeply personal note, I cannot tell you how much it means to me that my extra chromosome might lead to the answer to, to Alzheimer's. It's likely that this thief will one day steal my memories, my very life, from me. This is very hard for me to say, but it has already begun to steal my mom from me. Please think about all those people you love, the way I love my mom. Help us make this difference. If not for me and my mom, then for, then for you and the ones you love. Let's be America, not Iceland or Denmark. Let's pursue answers, not final solutions. Let's be America. Let's make our goal to be Alzheimer's free not Down syndrome-free. Thank you. Imagine having to justify your existence before a congressional subcommittee. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Wow. Great job on that, Greg, and just holding back tears here listening the remarkable testimony from Frank Stevens. Whatever you learned today, please remember this. I'm a man with Down syndrome and my life is worth living. 
Frank said. Sadly, across the world, the notion is being sold that maybe we don't need research concerning Down syndrome. Some people say prenatal screens will identify Down syndrome in the womb and those pregnancies will just be terminated. It's hard for me to sit here and say those words, Frank said. We are the canary in the eugenics coal mine. We are giving the world a chance to think about the ethics of choosing which humans get a chance at life. I love the last thing he said. Let's be America, not Iceland or Denmark. Frank Stevens' story, as powerful a story as we've told here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Eleanor Roosevelt died in 1962, and on this day in history is always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things that matter in life, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. Here's Faith bringing you the story of Eleanor Roosevelt. In this country, the gift must be based on your ability to give. Nobody but you can be the judge of what you are able to do. But let it be more than you have before thought you could give to others. The world's most admired woman. She was no daring beauty, but she paved the way for women in politics and in many other areas. Born Anna Eleanor Roosevelt on October 11, 1884, the famed First Lady often described herself as the Ugly Duckling and plain. Her mother even nicknamed her Granny because she had such old ways even as a little girl. Eleanor's early life was by no means easy. And by the age of eight, her mother died of an infectious disease, which later took her younger brother as well. Then, just two years later, her father died from the effects of his alcoholism. After living with her maternal grandmother for a handful of years, she was sent off to boarding school in London at the age of 15. In 1902, Eleanor met her father's fifth cousin, a young Harvard student named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yep, she married her cousin. I guess not having to change your name would be pretty convenient. Franklin's mother was very opposed to the marriage. She made it extremely clear. But they got married anyway on March 17, 1905. Centered around Eleanor's uncle's schedule, because he was to be the one to walk her down the aisle. And it just so happened he was a pretty busy guy. On her wedding day, the then-president Theodore Roosevelt gave her away. Eleanor and Franklin had six children, of which only five survived. And in 1921, President Franklin contracted polio. This caused him to lose the mobility in his legs. Eleanor cared for him and continued to encourage him in his political career, and she soon became known as her husband's eyes and ears. 
and legs, apparently, because she would then bring the news back of what was happening. Thankfully, he continued to get better, and he was eventually nominated as the Democratic presidential candidate. His theme song was Happy Days Are Here Again. Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again. In 1933, when her husband was inaugurated, she became the reluctant first lady. She disliked the previous stereotypes and expectations for the wife of the president. So she started doing things a little differently, which really brought a lot of lashback and criticism. However, she didn't let that stop her. In her 12 years as first lady, she averaged 40,000 miles of travel a year. She was so popular, she received over 300,000 letters the first year her husband was in office. In 1934, even Hitler said of her, Eleanor Roosevelt is America's real ruler. Among many other things, she was the first first lady to ever hold a press conference, to be employed by the U.S. government, to be appointed as the deputy director of civilian defense, And she was also the first woman to be appointed as a United Nations delegate. She found a way to have a constituency of her own once her husband became president. Eleanor pioneered the use of mass media to communicate directly with the public, including commercials. Years ago, most people never dreamed of eating margarine. But times have changed. Nowadays, you can get a margarine like the new Good Luck, which really tastes delicious. That's what I've spread on my toast. Good luck. I thoroughly enjoy it. The margarine Mrs. Roosevelt has just recommended is new good luck, the light margarine. She also wrote My Day, which was her near-daily newspaper column. Appropriately titled, it outlines her day and followed the activities and issues that occupied her life. It was published in 180 papers nationwide six days a week from 1935 to 1962. She fought for equal rights. And early on in 1938, there's this surprising story involving this wonderful first lady. In 1938, the Southern Conference for Human Welfare held its inaugural meeting in Alabama's Magic City. Upon her arrival, Roosevelt sat directly beside an African-American associate, ignoring the designated white-only section en route. After being told that Birmingham's segregation policies prohibited whites and blacks from sitting together at public functions, the first lady asked for a ruler. She said, now measure the distance between this chair and that one. Upon examining this gap separating the white and black seating areas, the first lady placed her chair directly in its center. There she sat, defiantly, in a racial no-man's land, until the meeting concluded. They were afraid to arrest her, one witness claimed. I mean, after all, she was the first lady. Eleanor Roosevelt was also the voice of comfort amidst tragedy and difficult times, including her address to the public after Pearl Harbor. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to you tonight at a very serious moment in our history. The cabinet is convening and the leaders in Congress are meeting with the president. The State Department and Army and Navy officials have been with the president all afternoon. In fact, the Japanese ambassador was talking to the president at the very time that Japan's airships 
were bombing our citizens in Hawaii and the Philippines and sinking one of our transports loaded with lumber on its way to Hawaii. By tomorrow morning, the members of Congress will have a full report and be ready for action. In the meantime, we, the people, are already prepared for action. For months now, the knowledge that something of this kind might happen has been hanging over our heads, and yet it seemed impossible to believe, impossible to drop the everyday things of life and feel that there was only one thing which was important, preparation to meet an enemy no matter where he struck. That is all over now, and there is no more uncertainty. We know what we have to face, and we know that we are ready to face it. Whatever is asked of us, I am sure we can accomplish it. We are the free and unconquerable people of the United States of America. On April 12, 1945, Franklin died of a stroke. And she told everyone after that that the story was over. But she continued to remain an active figure in politics. In 1945, President Truman asked her to be a delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. Eleanor chaired the committee that drafted and passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What is that exactly? Well, after World War II and the atrocities of the Nazi concentration camps came out, it was apparent that human rights were on the line. During World War II, the Allies had adopted the four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, and freedom from want as their basic aims. This would be the foundation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Here is her address to the UN. I'm very glad to be able to take part in this celebration in St. Louis on Human Rights Day. Ever since the Declaration of Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was passed in Paris in 1948 on December the 10th, we have fostered the observance of this day, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. The object is to make people everywhere conscious of the importance of human rights and freedoms. The reason for that is that these are spoken of and emphasized in the Charter of the United Nations. And the Declaration was written to elaborate the rights already mentioned in the Charter and to emphasize also for all of us the fact that the building of human rights would be one of the foundation stones on which we would build in the world an atmosphere in which peace could grow. Because war destroys all human rights and freedoms. So in fighting for those, we fight for peace. When she died in 1962, President John F. Kennedy commented, It is my judgment that there can be no adequate replacement for Mrs. Roosevelt. The world loses its most widely known and widely loved woman, Eleanor Roosevelt, 
widow of the great wartime president, was a mother figure not only to her large and close-knit family, but to thousands of homesick GIs and to the impoverished and underprivileged in all parts of the earth. What she once wrote at the age of 14 rang true for her whole life. Quote, No matter how plain a woman may be, if truth and loyalty are stamped upon her face, all will be attracted to her. This is Faith Garcia reporting to you from Our American Stories. Great job on that, Faith. On this day in history, in 1962, Eleanor Roosevelt died. American stories, some of our very favorite stories have come from authors, folks who spent years or often a lifetime studying or living a topic. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear author Neil Gabler's talk about Barbara Streisand, his terrific book about her life, A Brooklyn Lady, by the way. Terry Teachout, his remarkable piece on Louis Armstrong and his book on Louis Armstrong. We did that in celebration of Armstrong's life. And Richard Zack's terrific new book on Mark Twain and how he lost all of his money and got some of it back and then lost it all over again. And today we have a very special author joining us, one who has lived a life worthy of several books. For 18 years, Charles Campisi was chief of the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau, the largest anti-corruption unit in the world. He held that position longer than anyone else, and as you can imagine, the man has some stories. He is the author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Charles. It is certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Charles, before we get into the book, we like to start things, but we always start them here on Our American Stories, with where you were born, your parents, and what you did as a kid that led you to be a cop, and a cop that ultimately chased bad cops. Um, What led you to become the man you were, decisions and forces in your life when you were young? Well, really, it starts off when I was about five years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh... My parents were also born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandparents uh, immigrated from, uh, from Italy you know, back in the 1890s. And at that time, I had an aunt who lived two doorways away from the old 83rd precinct, which was on Wilson Avenue in, uh, in Brooklyn. And as a kid, five years old, we visited. I would be there, and I would be uh, playing in the streets, as we did back then in the, uh, the mid to late 50s. And I got to meet and talk to and admire some of the police officers that worked basically right next door. And they were very nice people. They were people that I wanted to emulate. Uh, They would talk to me. As a matter of fact, one officer, an officer, his name was Mike. I don't know his last name. I don't think I ever did know his last name. Would let me walk down the street with him. There was even a time he put his police hat on my head and said, come on, you're with me, partner. And it was a great experience. And from that very early age, I knew I wanted to be like them. I knew I wanted to be someone who was counted on to help and someone who would be uh, available when people needed them. And that's really how it all starts. And that's how it starts for so many of us. You know, how uh, we behave as adults in our professions can actually impact whether young people choose that profession. And what a great illustration of that, uh, Charles. 
But if you had had a different experience with a police officer or two, you may have had a fundamentally different life. Absolutely. I might have taken an entirely different path. It's so true. And then talk about Brooklyn at the time, during your formative years, and talk about this place, Brooklyn. It's one of the more remarkable parts of New York City. It's the biggest borough. It has the most population. And everybody who goes to New York City always goes to Manhattan. But I've always submitted the most interesting parts of New York are in in the boroughs where the folks live who actually service and take care of that big island called Manhattan Island. Talk about Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn was a great place to grow up. Uh, we lived in a multicultural neighborhood. We all got along. There were people on my on my block where I lived from all over the world, immigrant families, uh, new people coming into the country. And we were all friends. We all played, and we could play in the street. There was no worries about uh, having a child on the street alone. And we played all the games that, that kids played in the mid-50s and, and early 60s. We played stickball in the middle of the street, and we used to use the sewers as different bases, uh, home plate, second base. Uh, we played stoop ball. We played all the things that, that, that Brooklyn basically came to be known for. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. We had the Dodgers. We had uh, everything you could want was there in Brooklyn. You know, it's a ma- remarkable. As Barbara Streisand grew up in Brooklyn, as you know, yes. and, and so did Neil Diamond. But what people didn't know until I did that book was that Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were at Erasmus High School at the exact same time, in the exact same class. That's didn't, crazy. didn't know each other. And they didn't know each other, because that's how big Erasmus High School is. And by the way, Brooklyn has a population of what, Charles? You know, four million people? Yes, and a matter of fact, there was a, a television show uh, called Welcome Back, Carter that portrayed Brooklyn as the third largest city in America if it was taken out of, uh, out of the Manhattan, out of the New York City five boroughs. It would be the third largest city in America. And I remember some of the cities, especially Philadelphia, not quite liking that. But, right. uh, yes, it's a big place, and it could be one of the largest cities in America. Indeed, and I've always told friends I grew up in northern Jersey, and that was back in the day when your parents would let you take your bicycle, go over the George Washington Bridge, strap your bike to a pole, get on a subway, and go anywhere you want, just be back by the time the sun sets. And a group of us would go out, and we would actually take trains all the way to Coney Island. And I had one friend who grew up in Brooklyn, and he had us bicycle from the Brooklyn Bridge straight down Ocean Parkway, all the way to Coney Island, and stopping all the way for all the different neighborhoods, from the Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods all the way to Little Odessa and Brighton Beach, which is all Russian. And it's truly a miracle, Brooklyn. And I urge all people who are listening, take an extra day or two when you go to New York City and get out of the city and go see the boroughs and go see life as it's lived outside of that, that big, that big, big uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, Charles, so you, 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 you grow up, you come out, you go out of high school. Talk about your formative and early years uh, at the New York City Police Department. Okay, I've, I joined the police department. I'm selected in 1973. It was a long process because while I was in high school, I had applied to become a police officer. And you go through a variety of uh, testing, uh, physical testing, medical testing, psychological testing, background. And when I left high school, I entered college. And, again, I went to college in Long Island University, the Brooklyn Center, downtown Brooklyn, right in the heart of Brooklyn. And, you know, basically it was a a tough process to become a police officer. So when I first get there, uh, you're going through the academy. Academy is very, you know, very rigorous 
physical training, which wasn't a problem for me at the time. You know, 21 years old, uh, you know, playing all kinds of sports. I mean, I love sports. I, I never was really any good in any of the sports, but I loved to play, and that was all that was important, that I, I got a chance to play. And uh, going into the police department, we were coming in right after the NAP Commission. NAP Commission was, uh, people might remember from Frank Serpico. He was the impetus behind the NAP Commission and, and his testimony and uh, his courage to come forward and try to stop corruption is uh, uh, well documented, not only in books, but you know, Al Pacino played him in the, in the movie. So, uh, You know, coming- Charles, hold that thought for a second. We're going to come in after a commercial break and pick it up after the Serpico uh, moment because it's such a critical moment in the life of the New York City Police Department. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And Charles, we were just talking about, and by the way, if you've not seen the movie Serpico, uh, which stars Al Pacino, it's a very young Al Pacino, by the way, and it was a book that spawned this thing called the Knapp Commission, which if you lived in the New York area, and even if you didn't, but studied law enforcement, it was one of the seminal sea changes in how to think about, you know, thinking about corruption in large city police departments in particular. Um, talk about that moment in the history of the NYPD, particularly as this film really got out there, because it had to change the perception of what people thought the average cop was up to day to day. Well, you're absolutely right, because what we found in uh, from the NAP Commission, from uh, from Frank Serpico's story and then from the, uh, uh, the movie, was that corruption was very systemic in the New York City Police Department. By that, I mean it flowed from the lowest levels all the way up to the top echelon of the police department. And it flowed horizontally. It flowed v- vertically. It seemed that everybody, and it really wasn't everybody, but they made it seem like everybody had their hand in the till. But I have to tell you that it was probably most of the people who had their hand in the till. And although when Knapp was finished with his investigation, he could only prove criminality on uh, the highest rank he was able to prove criminality was at the lieutenant's rank. But there was so much evidence that showed it went much, much higher to, uh, to the other ranks within the police department. So when the Knapp Commission finishes their investigation and Serpico's story is, is well told, uh, major changes within the police department. They moved people and dismissed people and fired people and at the, some of the lower levels arrested people and moved them out of the police department. So they changed the police department completely. Now, I'm entering the police department during this, uh, this change where you saw you know, chiefs and inspectors, the high-level people being forced out, being forced to retire, some of them being fired, some of them being prosecuted. Um, so it really changes everything. And systemic corruption, based upon the NAP Commission results, basically 
doesn't exist anymore in the police department of the NYPD. And we can thank Frank Serpico and the NAP Commission for that. So what they do is they put in place a division. They call it the Internal Affairs Division, and their job is to root out corruption. And what they do is very, very good at stopping this systemic corruption. But they remain stagnant over the years. They don't grow. See, corrupt people and corruption will find a way. It's like water. It'll find its own level. Yep. And what the old Internal Affairs Division didn't do was grow, was didn't learn from, uh, from their mistakes, did not uh, adapt to changing corruption patterns, and a new type of corruption that we termed opportunistic corruption was allowed to grow and grow. Now, opportunistic corruption comes at a time when the crack epidemic is flourishing throughout all major cities, especially New York. And now we have something new that they didn't necessarily have uh, pre-NAP days. Pre-NAP was mostly gambling, was mostly prostitution, the vices. They were uh, profiting from looking the other way, not necessarily participating in the action, but allowing it to flourish. Now this new corruption where they're taking advantage of situations, taking advantage of the large sums of money available through uh, narcotics and narcotics enforcement, uh, becomes much more difficult to to, uh, detect using the old methods. And the old IAD did not grow. They did not evolve while corruption mutated. Well, and that's the story of any company, any life, any church, any organization. Good people just can't manage in their own minds to wrap their heads around how an evil person will do anything, avoid anything to just do bad stuff. So it's no easy job to be uh, running or working with internal affairs for that reason alone. But also, when you first joined internal affairs and you were the chief of the NYPD's Eternal Affairs Bureau as, as we ended. You, what was it like then when you first started? What, what did the cops think of Internal Affairs? I mean, we get that uh, opinion from TV shows that people think that the guys in Internal Affairs are bad guys because they're going after cops. But I would, I would guess that good cops were rooting for Internal Affairs to get the bad cops out of their midst. Well, in the, in the very beginning, when we first started... We looked at the Internal Affairs Division, and we, we wanted to find out what was the opinion of uh, who was the Internal Affairs investigator that the cops identified with. And we did focus groups, and we brought in oh, a couple of hundred police officers, all different ranks, all different assignments, uh, all different levels, they, you know, young officers, more senior officers. And we asked them, who is the typical Internal Affairs investigator, and what do they do? Now, their opinions their beliefs, whether it's true or not, is what they believed, is that was reality to them. And their opinion was that if you were in internal affairs back then, when I first started in internal affairs, 1993, that you were one of three people. You were either a coward because you were afraid to be a real cop and you went and hid in internal affairs rather than be on the street and be on patrol. Number two, you were a thief. You were a rat. You got caught dirty. And in exchange for some type of leniency, you agreed to go to internal affairs and rat out other cops. Or you were a zealot, someone who thinks they're going to change the world uh, by their mere presence, by their mere force of will, the world will be a better place. Now, again, I don't know if that was true or not, but that was their belief. And that was one of the first hurdles we had to overcome. Because my own experience with the internal affairs was not 
very positive. Now that, again, we're talking about the old internal affairs division. And it's something I call the great Christmas tree caper of 1978, where I was involved in an incident where there was a major demonstration down by City Hall, and I had recovered through a cab driver a briefcase belonging to a businesswoman. And we did everything we needed to do. We properly vouched it. We, we uh, notified the, the woman to come pick up her bag. We did everything we needed to do. It was done under supervision. And uh, it was textbook because at the time I was studying hard for the sergeant's exam, and I kind of knew the procedures as well as I, I ever would know them. So a couple of – this is just before Christmas. So about a week after Christmas, I get a notice to report to the old internal affairs division and bring my notes and my memo book, as we called it, uh, for a certain date. So I looked at that date, and I saw that that was the day that I recovered the uh, the briefcase. There was no money in it. There was a credit card in it. But – you know, papers, business papers that were valuable to the company and valuable to the woman, obviously. So they asked me, point blank, did I steal a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot that was a couple of miles away? And I said, no, I never stole a Christmas tree, and I can prove my location. They didn't want to hear it. They were very quick, okay, we're just going to dismiss you, you go away, and this is going to stay on your record that you were accused of stealing a Christmas tree. And it wasn't just me. There was uh, numerous officers. Uh, we were all riding three-wheel scooters at the time, and they couldn't get the full number because the Christmas tree branch was obscuring part of it. So anybody who was working that day in the vicinity was called down to the old Internal Affairs Division. And I argued with them, proving that I was nowhere near the location, and I had two supervisors who could verify that I was miles away and they just didn't care. They were just quick, and they want to close the case, go away. You know? And that's the impression you get. These guys aren't good investigators. These guys aren't here to help me. These guys are just here to you know, do their job and quick go home at the end of the night and not worry about anybody else. So coming in with that understanding that they weren't here to help me, they were here just to be expeditious, uh, and knowing that the general impression is that they're cowards and thieves and zealots, we had to change that image. We had to change that perspective. So the only way to do that is no longer allow anybody to volunteer to come into internal affairs. I certainly didn't volunteer to go. I was drafted by then Commissioner Kelly, who said to me, we're having problems, because there was a new commission that came in 20 years later, the Marlin Commission, yep. that had to do with a man named Michael Dowd. And people in the press uh, had Michael Dowd labeled as the dirtiest cop alive. And Michael was stealing drugs and beating people and stealing money and, and even doing it off-duty, coming in on his days off because he could make lots of money. Yep. And the old IAD, with their old tactics, let Michael go on for six, seven, possibly eight years doing what he was doing, and they never got a chance to catch him because they weren't doing it right. So coming to, with that in my background, we said no more volunteers into internal affairs. We have to select people, we have to draft people, and we have to draft the people who are the most knowledgeable, the best investigators, the people with pristine records, the people with good reputations, the people the other cops admire, the other cops look up to. And that's so smart, Charles, and you changed the culture overnight. We're talking to Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And going away with this volunteer system and making it be that the only way you can get in internal affairs was to be chosen, I would assume almost overnight this changes the nature and character of internal affairs itself, Charles. Well, it helped so much because within a short period of time, we started to do additional focus groups, you know, different people, but the same uh, basic backgrounds, cops from all different ranks and all. And amazingly, they weren't telling us about cowards and thieves and zealots. They were talking about, you took our best sergeant, you took our best lieutenant, you know, she was the best boss we ever had, and you stole her from us. And it no longer was thieves and and cowards. It was the best people go to IAB. That's not fair. They shouldn't go to IAB. They should be allowed to stay where they are. But IAB being such an important part of policing, and I used to tell my, my peers and my supervisors, you know, crime reduction in New York is great. We're, we're breaking all records. But I'll tell you, we have another big scandal, and all our, our, our accolades are going down the drain. Yep. We have to prove to the people that we could police ourselves. We can prove to the people that we're going to get rid of those bad cops. And what we found over our years is the overwhelming majority of cops, men and women, hardworking, dedicated people, come to work, do a very difficult job. But there's that small percentage, that half a percent, if you would, maybe one percent, that will steal the headlines every day away from the good cops. And in the New York City Police Department, where you have over 50,000 employees, 37,000 sworn officers, traffic agents, school safety agents, uh, assorted staff and computer analysts, that 50,000 people, if you're looking at 1%, you're looking at 500 people that you've got to worry about. And so that 1%, I think this is another point that I think is worth illustrating, is if you got 1%, then you've got quite a number of people out there doing bad things. But it's how long they can do bad things and to how many people. I, I had a lot of experience in Newark. I played a lot of basketball there. I had some friends there. And there was one cop that everybody knew was bad and everybody was afraid of for good reason. And he carried on on the streets for a decade without recourse till he was finally cuffed and stuffed but the what the harm he did because everybody assumed everybody knew but but everybody didn't know it it turns out he was a rogue guy who just he got away with things for far too long and the impact and the damage it did to the opinion of people on the street as it relates to the Newark Police Department I say it, it the for people who encountered that guy they still haven't recovered Charles I agree with you. Absolutely. That one person can affect the image of the entire force because that's the one that's going to be the, the most cognizant in your mind. And that's the one when he or she gets caught, makes the front page. And all the good that you've done gets washed away with that corruption scandal. Yep. And let's talk about a story I remember from back uh, when you were there. And that's the Abner Lawima case. And this is a difficult, difficult story. Take your time. Walk us through it. Okay, that's one of the most horrific stories in the annals of policing anywhere. And it all starts on a Saturday night in Brooklyn in uh, a club called Club Rendezvous. There's a big party, mostly Haitian Americans attending this party, many Haitian Americans living in the community. There's a big fight that erupts inside the party. It spills out into the street. The police are called, 
and the police send everybody on their way. There are no arrests made at that time. And while they're breaking up this large disturbance, there's a police officer named Justin Volpe who's standing in front of Club Rendezvous, and a man runs by and sucker punches Justin, knocks him to the ground, and runs away. Justin is now infuriated, and he gets in the car with other officers, and they start to look for the man who sucker-punched Justin. They spot Mr. Abner Luima, who is not the man who punched Justin, but they believe it's him. They grab him, they arrest him, they handcuff him, they put him in the back of a police car, and they beat him up. They hit him several times as they're driving from the scene back to the 70th precinct, 70 precinct in, uh, in Brooklyn. As they're taking him, two or three times they stop, they punch him, they smack him, they hit him. Uh, they then bring him into the station house. They bring him before the desk officer and they explain that this man sucker punched Justin Volpe. We take his belt away, his shoelaces, and the things they normally would do so when they put him in a cell, he can't hurt himself. But they do something different. They start to walk him back to where the cell area is so that they can start the booking process. As they're walking him, because his, his pants were kind of baggy, they didn't fit well, uh, and they had taken his belt, his pants start to fall down to his ankles. And he's kind of shuffling now, more like a duck walk. And there are officers who are working there. Now, this is on a midnight tour. Uh, so it happened someplace about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. They see him being walked back, Mr. Louima, they see him being walked back to the cell area, and nobody thinks much of it. The cell area is to the left of the hallway, but they don't take Mr. Louima to the cell area. They take him to the right, which is a, a, a bathroom that's used by the officers. It's not a public bathroom. It's an a, 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 a office bathroom. So they take him in the bathroom, and then they proceed to beat him again. One officer is in there is beating him again, Justin Volpe. Then, for whatever reason, and this is where my mind can't, can't grasp this, he takes a broomstick, and Justin Volpe breaks the broomstick, and then he rams it into the rectum of Mr. Luima. I can't imagine the pain that this man went through. Uh, a second officer is reported to have entered the bathroom, while Justin is doing this to Mr. Luima, he then, is, he then stops after a period of time. He takes Mr. Luima, puts him in the cell, and he waves the stick with feces and blood and, and who knows what. He's waving it around uh, as a prize, as a, some sort of trophy. In the meantime, Mr. Luima is in the cell in excruciating pain. The next morning when the next tour comes on, Mr. Luima is very, very sick. He's in pain. They decide, the new officers decide, wait, this man's sick. We've got to get him to a hospital. And they take him to Coney Island Hospital, where he tells a nurse about being sodomized with a stick by these police officers. What the nurse does is she makes a mistake, and then the Internal Affairs Bureau, my investigator, compounds that mistake. She calls Internal Affairs. And she tells Internal Affairs her husband was assaulted. Now, the officer who takes the call, I mean, talk about bad luck for, for all of us, it's his first day at the command center taking phone calls, very first day. He makes a rookie mistake. Well, he is a rookie. When she cannot pronounce Mr. Louima's name, 
and she mispronounces it two or three times. He says to her, lady, this your husband? Don't you know his name? Can't you pronounce it? Could you spell it for us? And she says, but she didn't want to really get involved. She wanted to just pass off the information. She says, let me call you back. And then here's where, where my investigator makes the mistake. He says, okay, lady, call me back. You never let the person off the phone. Right. You get as much information as you can. You start a preliminary investigation. You notify your supervisors. You do all of those things. He didn't do any of those things. So a little later in the day, we could have had we could have been involved in the case a little earlier if he would have handled the call right. Now, naturally, hold on, Charles, hold that thought right there because we're coming up upon a break. But we want to hear the rest rest of this story, the Abner Louima story as horrifying a story as there was in the history of the New York Police Department and the man who was in charge of internal affairs or was working at internal affairs at the time, Charles Campisi, his book, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More after these messages. Our American Stories. We continue our final segment in this hour-long conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And we were talking about the Abner Louima case and the unfortunate luck of internal affairs getting the call and a rookie answering that call. And what he did, not getting that person's information, letting that call disappear was something, again, that someone more trained, Charles, wouldn't have done, but this was really bad news for internal affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was probably, I was there in internal affairs for 21 years, the chief for 17 and a half years. This was the worst mistake you could make under the worst case that there could be. And so what happens next? Uh, how does the media get a hold of this? How do okay, people that, find that, out, that's, and what happens? That's, that's an excellent point, because the media doesn't get a hold of this until Wednesday. Now, this is a Sunday morning when we get the phone call, and they drop the call. We get a second call about a man being in the hospital, injured, seriously injured. That call, a couple of hours later, is handled absolutely correctly. We, get a, we dispatch investigative teams to the hospital. We send a team to the 7-0 precinct to secure it and, uh, and freeze the, the bathroom. We send people to Club Rendezvous to try to get as much information as possible. And our investigation is off and running on Sunday, Sunday night. Monday morning, I get all this information. Number one, they, they called me at home to tell me all this information. And I said to them, you have the resources you need. What else could I send you? What could I give you? And we're off and running. I get to the police commissioner. His name was Howard Safer at the time. I get to him first thing Monday morning. 
and I start to lay out our investigation for him. And he's looking at me saying, do you believe this really happened? Because nobody wanted to believe that a man would do this to another man. A human being would do this to another human being. And worst of all, a cop would do this to another human being. And then to compound that it happened in a police station. And people didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it, but the evidence was so overwhelming. So by Monday morning, we've identified who, worked, who was working that night. We brought photo arrays to the hospital. We had Mr. Luima pick out the officers that were there, who hit him, who put him in the car. We, we had this investigation in full steam by Monday afternoon. And Monday afternoon, uh, I'm called down to City Hall to brief the mayor, Mayor Giuliani. And I brief him on the case, and I'm giving him the facts and the circumstances. And as the true prosecutor he was, you got to remember, Rudy Giuliani was the United States attorney uh, for the Southern District of New York. He's asking pertinent questions. And I have to be, be honest, we had the answers because our investigation was solid up to that point. We were working with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And the press doesn't get this until Wednesday, and they start asking questions. Now, naturally, the nature of internal affairs work, I can't reveal my investigation to them. So they keep saying, well, what are you doing, police department? What are you doing, internal affairs? And I said to them, don't worry, it's under investigation. But they wanted more. They wanted names and dates and facts and figures, which I could not give them because I'm working with prosecutors. And what prosecutor wants his or her case in the newspaper before they get a chance to bring it before a grand jury? Well, the good news is within two weeks, we had five indictments. Now, if you know the criminal justice system, to get people indicted in two weeks, to get five police officers indicted in two weeks, that's a pretty quick time period. That's, that's, a, that's a monumental task, and we did it. Well, Charles, you did it respecting the in- presumption of innocence of the cops, which we have to always respect. Um, but, Everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Right. Everybody. And sometimes Citizens, we see, Charles, sometimes we see a prosecutor go in and get an indictment before there's any investigation. And, and that's the dynamic tension between internal affairs and the media. And the media wants, and, and the masses, well, they want a prosecution or they want an indictment immediately. They want but, an execution Well, they today. want an execution. And your job is to get to the truth. And this is why it's so important for internal affairs to have integrity for internal affairs to have the kind of people, the quality people that can protect the very brand and image of the department by so seeking out truth that they're willing to get that bad cop and prosecute him, but only if he's violated the law. And we went step by step. And I tell you what was great about this case. We always hear about the blue wall of silence. Well, in this particular case, once some of the facts became known, once the officers in the 7-0 precinct realized that this really happened, they came forward, and they provided the critical information that we needed to get the indictment in two weeks. We had an officer who started to put things together. He saw Volpe and, um, and Mr. Luima walking into the, into, towards the bathroom area. He saw Luima with a stick in his hand, and he says, wait a minute, this might have happened. He calls us and says, I have information, and I want to talk to you guys right now. Now, we're talking about you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. So we get a team together, and we rush the team over to, to, to him, and he starts giving us a piece of information. Then another cop comes forward with a piece of information, and our case starts to build real quickly and real solid. So the blue wall of silence, if there is such a thing, 
and I can attest that there is, but I'll talk about that in a second, it crumbles in this case because it was so horrendous that people in the precinct, other police officers, said this can't happen, we can't stand by and let this happen. So very, very encouraged by the officers coming forward in that case. And by the way, it was remarkable, the, the right things happened, uh, people were prosecuted, they were thrown in prison like they should have, and ultimately Abner Lewina was, well, not made whole, because you can't be made whole after something like this, but there were civil fines, and the Lewina family was compensated for their damages. I can't imagine what that man went through, and he received compensation, and Justin Volpe is serving a 30-year sentence in a federal penitentiary, I believe, in Minnesota. And that's what justice looks like and needs to look like always for all. And by the way, equal justice under the law, that's the, that's the game for the cops, equal justice for the citizens, equal justice. And let, talk about that blue wall of silence in our final minutes together, um, because it's, it's there. Uh, but how is it different than it was back in the day? Well, I'll tell you, everybody knows of, the, knows of the blue wall of silence. But my question is, what makes people think that a wall of silence exists only within the policing community, which it does? But it exists in every occupation and every group. There is, we had a case that we investigated. There was two firefighters in a fire station get into a fight. One of them hits the other with a folding chair. Serious injury. The fire department, which also handles EMS, picks the man up and rushes him to the hospital. They say he fell off of a ladder while he was fixing something. They quick clean up the, the crime scene. They take all the blood. They throw the chair away. They do all of this stuff. So what we call that a red wall of silence because they covered up for their own. In the medical profession, very rarely do you see doctors testifying against other doctors. Yep. And we've had cases where doctors have botched surgeries and the other people in the operating room never came forward. So could we call that the white wall of silence? In, in occupations, especially occupations where you rely on the other person for safety and for your very life, there tends to be a wall of silence. Is there a blue wall of silence? Yes, but it is not just in the police profession. It is in all professions. Now you'd see it in the military, too, in combat. You'd see this, by the way, when the, when the, when the Armstrong, Lance Armstrong doping thing happened in bicycling, the doping in baseball. Well, it turned out there was a lot more of it than people cared to admit because, A, no one wanted to snitch, and, B, a lot more people were doing it than cared to admit. Absolutely. And, and these are things that happen because human beings are flawed. And that's just the nature of any occupation and, frankly, any walk of life. Our human beings are flawed. Uh, tell me one last misconception people might have about not only the life in internal affairs, but the life and the daily life of particularly a big city cop. See, cops don't come to work with, every day with the idea of hurting people. So to some people, they think that these cops, all they want to do is abuse people's rights. They want to hurt people. They're racist. They're prejudiced. Cops don't come to work to hurt people. Sometimes there are situations where, where people are injured and people are hurt. In internal affairs, internal affairs investigators are not there to hurt good cops. And that's the, the impression we get mainly because of in the movies and in television, internal affairs is always the, the outsider, the cop who is uh, uh, trying to hurt the hero or heroine from doing a, a good job. Yep. They're trying to prevent Dirty Harry from getting those bad guys off the street, and they want to stop the cops who are, who are uh, uh, break, dragging in the drug dealers. That's not the case. We, we're police officers. 
we're there to support good cops, to help good cops, but we're there primarily to make sure that the bad cops don't get away with it and they don't tarnish the reputation and steal the headlines away from the good cops. Well, we've been talking to Charles Campisi, who is the chief of NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, the biggest internal affairs bureau in the country, representing and doing work with and for the biggest police force in the country, with at the time, at one point in time, 41,000 cops, over 50,000 in total. And that's bigger than, well, many towns in America. And when you have that many people, you're going to have to police some of the bad guys. Charles Campisi's book... Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops, is a must-read. We don't do a lot of books on our American stories, but when we do them, we know you'll love them. And, Charles, thanks for the storytelling, and thanks for telling this story for all the cops, particularly the good cops, Charles, as you said, the overwhelming majority that you serve. Well, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure to be, and I I hope uh, uh, we added to uh, some of the changes that we need. You bet. And thanks again. That's Charles Campisi, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. Go to Amazon.com and get it now. Charles Campisi's story here on Our American Stories.